0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Marty have of the PPJ Gazette Online, and this is the TS Radio Network. It's February 18th, 2021. Do you know where your mind is? I swear, uh, if any more crap comes out of the government, I, I just don't know what I'm going to do. Um, we, ha- we have gone through a period here, I think, which is maybe the epitome of everything that's gone on the last 30 years in D.C., what we have is one of the most dysfunctional, disjointed, inoperative, corrupted government we could have imagined. And we've sat here and let it happen. Instead of going after them, we have fought between each other, called each other names, attacked each other when we should have been going after them. There is no accountability. There is no accountability What we're going to be talking about tonight is an organization called Whistleblowers of America, and heading that up is a lady named Jacqueline Garrick. Now, whistleblowers are a special breed of people. These are people who have enough character and integrity and spine to stand up and say, wait a minute, this is wrong. You're not supposed to be doing this. You're wasting money. You're abusing this or abusing that or you're abusing one of the employees and they stand up and they blow the whistle, which is what they're required to do if they know about things like this. Yet what happens to them is that that same agency, it's employees and supervisors and managers and whoever else is in there, turns on them like a pack of pit vipers and they create all kinds of problems for these people and it is a sort of trauma-based System that they have going they terrorize these people to the point that you wouldn't believe it and as my guest and I spoke about earlier We're paying for all of this We are paying for every bit of we are paying For these people to do this to whistleblowers and then if they do get charged with what they've done We pay for their attorneys and they walk away Scott. We also pay any fines fees and penalties Thank you. So we are funding this abuse and waste and fraud, no matter which way it goes. Now, I've heard a lot of talk about, oh, they just blew the whistle because there's money in it. Very few whistleblowers ever see a dime. Uh, All this talk about, oh, they just did it for the money. No, they did it because they had something called integrity, which apparently you don't have. And they are, I think people recognize that in the person who blew the whistle and also recognize in themselves that they wouldn't do it. They, would, they wouldn't have the backbone to do it. So you need to appreciate our whistleblowers and you need to stand up for them and support them. I wanna remind everybody these shows are brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit, an annual event in Washington, DC, usually taking place at the end of July. And we're waiting for word on what the arrangement is going to be this year. But with all that said, I'd like to bring our guest on, and Jacqueline, how you doing? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me back. Oh, sure. I'm glad to. Um, for those who might not be aware of your organization, uh, why don't you give them a little background on how you became involved in it?
0: Sure. Well, you know, all of this was quite by happenstance or accident, as, uh, as you'll learn about most whistleblowing Um, so in in 2017 we set up whistleblowers of America as a nonprofit because of this need to connect with each other Um, when I first blew the whistle it was around 2014 and I was desperate to find somebody else who understood the situation that I was going through and could give me advice. Did I need an attorney? You know, was my job protected? What was I going to do? How was I going to survive all of this? And it was more and more legal judicial proceedings and things I didn't know anything about or understand. Um, The first time somebody called me a whistleblower and said you should file a PPP, I had no idea what they were talking about. It was overwhelming to me. So when I started talking to other people and they were really great at sort of guiding me and directing me, I thought, oh, more people need this. And so I started posting some things on LinkedIn, and it was – um another uh, another woman, government employee from another agency in another state who reached out to me and we started this dialogue and we talked on the phone and, and this was after the first time we talked on the phone and she said to me, you know, I'm sitting here with my service revolver on the table and I was really contemplating killing myself but you've made me feel so much better. And I thought, oh my gosh, this really is like, combat oh. vets and trauma and PTSD and the suicide. It was all the stuff that I was familiar with from the rest of my career, having worked with combat vets and the military for decades. So um, I really began to see the need to pair up whistleblowers in the same way we were using peer support for combat veterans and, and for you know what an organization. one.
1: Uh, wow. It just, you know, it's like I had said to you, the idea that the taxpayers, the public, is paying mm-hmm. for all of this. You're you're paying for, for the fraud, waste, and abuse. You're paying for the retaliation. You are paid mm-hmm. if they go to court and they get charged. You're paying for their attorneys. You're paying any fines and, you know, other things that may happen to them monetarily. You're paying for all of them. They're really not being held accountable for anything. Not one of them sees a day in jail or anything. The idea, Jackie, I told you this the idea that this could be happening in federal agencies. These mm-hmm. are supposed to be yeah. the top, the cream of the crop, the best, the most, you know. And it turns out they are just cesspools of influence peddling yeah. and corruption. Mm-hmm. It, it's just disgusting. So and I we're like I said we're a small
0: organization and in 3 years I've probably logged over 625 conversations connections with people from all over the world at this point but I will tell you my number one whistleblower comes from the Department of Veterans Affairs and then the Department of Defense and Most of the issues they blow the whistle on are things like contracting fraud, fraud, waste, and abuse, and standards of care over discrimination and harassment in the ranks. Uh Um, So it it is this mix of government people who are really trying to do the right thing and set the right course. But I'll be honest with you, I one time... Um, a few years ago now, I went, and I, I just sort of went to be a companion. I couldn't legally represent him there. I'm not an attorney. I'm a social worker by background. Um, so my first disclaimer for the evening. Um, but I went and I sat with this very senior person. He, uh, he was older, had had a very long, distinguished career. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that the government was trying to railroad him out of his job so that they could shut down his office and his program um, and, and get rid of it. So they were trying to get rid of the champion of the office, which is what I see often. Instead of um, having to reprogram or, or, and having to fight for the program, they get rid of the champion of the program, then it's easier to get rid of the program. So they were trying to get rid of his program. Wow. And he had spent thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on his case. And like most people, family obligations prevail, and he ran out of money for the attorneys. So by the time his case went to MSPB, he showed up with two briefcases and binders of materials that he had accumulated about his case. And then the government walked in, and there were two attorneys, a paralegal, a um, labor management relations advisor and their witness. And I thought, wow, look at this imbalance of justice. Here's this this poor poor man fighting for his reputation and five government witnesses that we're all paying for, that he's paying for. Yes. That are gonna that are, and the judge was just so gracious and just gave him an opportunity to really present his case and kind of helped him understand the process and, you know, how you ask a question. And she was, yes. she really understood what it was like. And I'm sure other people, I mean, I had a, I ended up doing the process per se myself without an attorney. But you, you just, I mean, it was just such a visual. I'll never forget the five of them all together in their high-powered suits and all of their stuff and, and this poor guy with his binders and it it was just so sad it, and and just such a visual yeah. of how imbalanced our justice system is especially for federal employees.
1: Yes. Well, you know, as, as people in the public or whistleblowers, you know, coming out of these things, you're caught between a rock and a hard place because most mm-hmm. of them don't have the money for an attorney, they'll scrape it together, and then a lot of times that attorney does not represent them at all or does so inadequately. And you know, and yet the government and these agencies have an unlimited checkbook for this stuff. Our Correct. money, of course. They're not spending oh, their sure. own money. They're spending our money. And here's this I think in these whistleblower cases, Jackie, that Once that's lodged and they, and they lodge a, a lawsuit, I think money should be provided to the whistleblower to bring mm-hmm. their case. I think that's only fair if we can fund the people that are there should be funding there for people to bring their case. Because getting yeah. into this, and, and I deal with the, the Bar Association members on many, many different levels, there, I have no respect mm-hmm. for these people at all. If you can find one in 500 that's worth paying to do a job, I'd I'd appreciate knowing about it. (laughs) But I think there should be funding for whistleblowers to help Mm -hmm. mount their case.
0: Oh, so, Marty, it's interesting that you say that because I was having a conversation about a week or so ago with a woman in South Africa, of all places, who was trying to set up a peer support program similar to what I do with Whistleblowers of America so is giving her mm-hmm. sort of my best guidance and and she was talking about how they're trying to get this legislative effort off the ground that um, whether it be the government or the private sector that that <laughs> whistleblowers have the same equal access to justice as the companies they're blowing the whistle on so if the government has five attorneys then the whistleblower should have the same five attorneys funded for them so that there's a balance yes. in these legal teams because the,
1: the, the fact deals. that,
0: yes, yeah. And, you know, and it was, it's interesting to me because I, I did, as I said, I did my case pro se as well. And the, um, and, and I think the judge was really helpful in that he told me, these are the three things you're going to need to do for your case. And, and two things were were basically very simple. Like one is, I had to show my eligibility as a federal employee. That was easy. That paperwork was easy. And then I had to show, um, I had to show the harm caused and the connection between what I was claiming. And I I asked the government for a disability benefit because of whistleblower retaliation. So. He gave me like this very prescriptive what you need to do. And what I have found is that when whistleblowers hire attorneys, one, you have to know how to hire an attorney because you have to hire the right attorney. And then you you need to know how to be prepared for the attorney. So even though I ended up not going through this full process with an attorney who, um, much to her credit, told me, look, this will cost you at least $70,000 more than what you've already spent. And I was probably in for over 6000 at the time. And she said to me, I'll give you like the tips of the trade, but without a, without a steady income and no, no idea what you're going to be doing for your livelihood, you need to live on your savings. So don't spend it on this case. He said you've got you know you've got grounds to fight it but here's how you know you could really walk this through yourself and so I, I started you know my appeal process um, by launching it on my own and then I had no idea what to do and I was, I was in you know the merit system protection board website and I was trying to figure out what to file and the government attorney filed stuff and I thought that's what it looks like. So I started taking his uh-huh. formatting and, how, and what he cited, and I just looked it around. And I started putting things into, like, I learned from him. I didn't just fight him. Yes. I learned from him. Without him knowing he was going to give me anything, I learned from him. Yeah. And I think yeah. sometimes it's hard when you're in, when you're in this fight mode it's really hard to be in a learning mode because you're so used to having to defend yourself and fight everything. It's hard to really take stuff in. And then one of the things I started learning from other whistleblowers were some of their tricks. Like when we did discovery, I got back a bunch of um, minor, oh, what day are you available? And I got emails like that, scheduling emails and appointment requests. It was all wasteful. It it was nothing that could help me with my case. So I did a FOIA. And on FOIA, I got a whole trove of different information. And it was (laughs) the information I got on FOIA that I took to the judge. And I said, I can prove animus. Let me read you some of the things they wrote about me. And I started to read their names, the date they wrote it, and what they wrote. And I went one by one by one. And it was absolutely cathartic. So on that level, even if I wouldn't have won my case, it was like I finally got to somebody was listening to me and I was reading these nasty, derogatory, insulting emails that they never thought I would get to see, I imagine. But to read them to a judge and have him adjudicate that was so validating and so um, reaffirming for me. Uh, and and then of course, when he reversed the denial of my benefits and and agreed that I proved ominous because of whistleblower retaliation and that that caused me harm, I, I I mean I I remember getting that letter, and I read it in the driveway. I couldn't even wait to get in the house to open it, and I read it just standing in the driveway, and it made me cry. I just couldn't believe somebody believed no me after
1: fighting it for five years it was horrible wow yeah i can't uh i think one of the things that comes out of all of the issues that we deal with whistleblowing being one of them is the idea that people have had to learn the law which i think in and of itself is a good thing they've had to learn mm-hmm. the law because you get no education in it in school so In any situation, you're coming into it blind with assumptions that you've made based on what you've been told in school, you know, in an indirect way about what a wonderful country. We're We're the most noble and most honest. And you can trust the government. No, you can't. And um, but on the one hand, I think it's a sad situation that we have had to take this aspect on. On the other, I think it's a very good thing because you need to know what the law is. You need to know how to use it. Um, I know the Supreme Court came out here. I think it was three years ago, and said that they will no longer hear pro se cases. Yeah, because you're a a bar member. And um, I know Wisconsin came out in 2010, Mm -hmm. said their Supreme Court and their new rules said that oh they would no longer hear uh, they would hear pro se cases, but if anyone helped you with your case, anyone, they were guilty of a Class Mm -hmm. C felony um but they don't like pro se many times a pro se will go into court and is more true to form uh, they may make some minor mistakes but they don't stand up and lie they don't try to manipulate the situation they're very tuned in on this has to be accurate it has to be you know irrefutable and um so you get that but almost you know, like the women of forestry um they talked about mm, not yeah. only in the retaliation. Mm-hmm. They talk about how they didn't just retaliate; they dogged them for years. They, mm-hmm. if they applied for a job no. somewhere else, they would mm-hmm. give them a bad review. If they they ruined them financially, they caused so much stress in their families that their their marriages would break up. Some of them committed yes. suicide. Mm-hmm. This from the federal government. Yeah, no,
0: I'm aware of the USDA, the fraud in the USDA, the um, abuse, especially of women in the Forest Service, has. Yes. It's one of those things that's that's out there, but not well understood. But uh, you know, I do have to say one thing, two things maybe here. <laughs> but uh, first of all, I, I I want I I want to first of all, just absolutely praise the people who did stand by me. The bravery that it took. Because most whistleblowers will talk about the ostracizing and the shunning that they go through and the mobbing. I mean, those are all horrible tactics. But the allies that will help or, or stand up with you, the people who will believe you. I mean, the person I made my disclosure to, who, like, Mm -hmm. who just, like, looked me in the eye. You could just see the steam coming out of his ears. And he picked up the phone and started to defend my position and what I was doing. Unfortunately, he passed away before the OSC or anybody interviewed him. But there Mm -hmm. was a witness that was in that meeting with me who wrote letters and signed statements and was by my side the entire time as a as a friend as a compatriot always doing the right thing and there were there were several others who stepped up to help to, who shared information who helped me develop my case who supported me who encouraged me to create whistleblowers of America so Yes, there are a lot of bad actors in the government, and there are a lot of perpetrators that I do believe there's a special place in hell for. Um, I agree. And let me open the door. (laughs) But I do have to just absolutely praise some of the (laughs) names and faces that are flashing before my mind right now. Who were mm-hmm. were just astronomical, and people who do good work every single day. I mean, I think most people who work for the government go into their jobs to do the right thing. I mean, I was I was mm-hmm. reading something that a VA employee recently posted that was just. I mean, it was you could you could read and hear and feel the compassion for their work. Their their uh-huh. Their work environment may, may suck, it may be hostile, they're yeah. fighting, but they're there every day because they're a, they're a veteran, they believe in their fellow veteran, and they want to see the right thing happen. And they're, they're doing their best to, to take care yeah. of the patient populations that they care about. We've got, you know, doctors, nurses, social workers, um, admin, tech, And you've got a full gamut of people at the VA. You've got police officers, you've got the Forest Service, you've got military, active duty military personnel who are whistleblowers because they see and want the right thing to happen. If there weren't good people in government, there wouldn't be any federal whistleblowers. (laughs) So they're out there. (laughs) And I think we should so I think we need to you know, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think there are some wonderful people. There you go. And in the government, and we have to, um, I think, stay true to that course. But I also agree yes. that the lesson in civics and civility that I had to learn yes. over the last few years was was definitely eye-opening. And you really, as the whistleblower, have to be your best advocate. You can't just write a check and hope the attorney knows what they're doing. That. The only one who really knows your case is you, and you're the best person to write your narrative, to write your timeline, to gather your evidence, and be able to explain it. But the thing the attorney is going to do is going to put in the right code of law and the precedential cases that have come before you. But you
1: really are going to develop your case. Right. Jackie, I got a question here from a listener going back a little bit in our conversation. And he wants to know, what is it that you're referring to as mobbing? What does that mean?
0: Ah, so that's a great question. Um, so when we talk about mobbing, we're really talking about a tactic where perpetrators are really good at getting um, other people in the, in the workspace to collaborate or conspire with them. You know, the example I always use is the flying monkeys of the wicked witch. They go out and do her bidding. Yes. They protect her castle, yeah. but they don't have her power. So people who are willing right. to do mobbing are people who will, like, report on your time in attendance, your expense reports, what you're doing, if you're late. Um, they're looking for any infraction that the whistleblower might have committed And they'll take action against you um one or the other or they'll sabotage your work behind your back or they'll um plagiarize your work and let others take credit for it so there are all these different techniques that mob mobsters use um and sometimes they do it wittingly or unwittingly like if your boss is asking you for a favor um people tend to want to do it because they want to incur favor with the boss. They don't go back and tell the whistleblower, hey, this is what the boss yeah. is doing. Um, you now, of course, when I was going through my case, I had people coming back to me going, oh, this is what she's saying, this is what she's doing, this is what she asked me to do, um, so that you become more familiar with some of these tactics and you have to be able to be prepared to defend against them. Um, whistleblowers often say, you know, it's not paranoia when they really are out to get you. So these are, these are the issues that we talk talk about and mobbing is one of those tactics. And um, I think I told you where we, um, we did an article earlier this year that on whistleblower retaliation that was published in the journal of crisis stress and human resilience. But from that article, we got a book deal with Springer Publishing Company, and we're going to be doing mm-hmm. an entire volume on the psychosocial impacts of whistleblower retaliation, shattering employee resilience, oh, and workplace illness. Oh. So yeah, we're we're very yeah. excited, cause that, and that should be due out by the end of this year. And identifying those toxic tactics like mobbing, but also things like, gaslighting, shunning, devaluing, marginalizing, uh, the actual vi- physical and emotional abuse. Um, those are the tactics that we talk about in the article that we're going to expand upon more in the book. And then how are these toxic tactics, how do they cause a psychological reaction um, and and do damage to somebody's identity and, and lifestyle?
1: Okay, I got another question here from a listener, and they want to know, um, it says, Miss Garrick, is there anything you can do, can, a whistleblower can do about the, let me read this correctly, derogatory remarks in writing that were false? Was Jackie, were this? was this just included in the case, or is this a separate issue? The ones you got so under FOIA, I'm assuming they're talking about
0: yeah so I mean that's what I turned over to the i mean those were the things I used as evidence of of what we of what I was trying to prove was animus that there there was this right. um, hostile work environment created against me um, right. that was and that these negative comments that this derogatory remarks um, was was dem- demonstrative of of how I was being treated. So getting those kinds of things and writing and finding those things. um, I mean, I, I, I got it on the FOIA, but I've had other people say that, and of course, depending upon the legalities of the situation, um, that they've recorded conversations or they have found things on social media that people post all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not unsurprising, like, if, you're, if your case is age discrimination and somebody is posting negative comments or derogatory jokes about older people, that sort of becomes evidence-building, like, hey, this is their attitude. You know, this is what I'm experiencing at work, but let's look at their social media. Um, you know, here's what they're posting. You know, if you're wow. saying somebody uh, has treated yeah. you you know, has, has discriminated against you because you're, you're black, and then you find out on social media that they're a member of
1: Proud Boys,
0: um, that, yeah. that helps you build your case. You have to have the right.
1: evidence of it, though, and that is the hard part. Okay, so, but you couldn't file separate charges against them for having done this. Is that what you're saying? Well, It's just inclusive so of the case, but it's not a separate right. charge.
0: No, and okay. remember, we are all, right. all government employees. So, I mean, as federal employees, there's a lot more limitation in terms of what you can file um, uh, yeah. for, you know, for, for criminal
1: charges. Right. Can I ask you this? Uh, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but I know when it comes to the military, and we've dealt with people from the military also, mm-hmm. um, how do they – can they avoid the military tribunal? Which of course doesn't follow the Constitution, because well, you during your term of service you're expatriated, and you that's where you become a government employee, a GI, government issue. And um, but in these cases, um, can they actually get into civil or criminal court? I, I'm trying to figure all this out. Like I say I think one of the saddest parts of all of this is that <laughs> even with this massive legal community the mm-hmm. the the attempts to extort every dime out of you they can and then fail to provide adequate services in many cases you're mm-hmm. left to your own devices and your own defense which I think and I say I've got to see both sides of this I think in and of itself is a good thing you can't have too mm-hmm. much knowledge and uh, I just don't think you can so learning this system and this legal mumbo jumbo and do this and spin around three times whistle Dixie and wave the flag and then we might talk to you when I got into these court cases Jackie and looked at what actually went on and this is covering several different issues I was just astounded at the dog and pony Mm -hmm. show that it was but it sounds like from what you're saying comparatively you didn't have such a difficult time you had a good judge those are hard to come by. Well, um, <laughs>
0: well and it took yeah. five years to get to that point. Um, so by no yeah. means was this a slam, bam, thank yeah. you, ma'am, easy, breezy right. kind of process. It took five years to mm-hmm. develop this case. And, I mean, I've got boxes and boxes of stuff in my office of of just putting all of this together and, reading things and understanding things and, and trying to understand like what, what made sense, what didn't make sense, what was useful, what was extraneous. Um, How do you build your, you know, how do you know what you want the judge to do so that you're presenting the case that walks him to that conclusion with all the right evidence. So, I mean, that was right. definitely not easy. And for the military, you're right, um, Uniform Code of Military Justice, UCMJ, is what drives the military cases, and they are, um, and this is where, like, cases of military sexual trauma have been so hard to deal with. And um, actually, one of my, my friends, my attorney, um, who's been on the board of Whistleblowers of America, Natalie Klam. Has been representing the Vanessa Gillen family in the um, effort to try to change some of those laws that the military are um, umbrellaed under. So things like the Ferris Doctrine that prevents you from right. suing for malpractice, the um, yeah, um, the fact your, your, your commander gets these reports for sexual assault and the command adjudicates its own um, wrongdoing, um, the fact that all of this happens under the same you know, umbrella um, makes these things difficult because you don't feel like you're getting fair representation. And then the whistleblower, you know, the woman or, or the man who reports sexual abuse, They've been subject to the same command is usually the one whose career ends, gets moved. It's not usually the perpetrator. And proving these cases, right. again, becomes a lot of he said, she said, unless they've made a um, a report and a rape kit has been done. Those cases have been, have just been heartbreaking because women, and then and Service members find it really hard to find justice in
1: such a closed system. Yeah. I got another question here. Um, I have a little trouble with my headset. Uh, this is from a lady. Her name is Katie. She said she spoke with you about three years ago, and you may remember her, but she has a question. She said, Did they ever try to stop you from um, representing yourself? She said, did the court try to stop you or did the opposing attorneys try to stop you?
0: Uh, so, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. Um, send me a note, let me know. Um, no, they never did stop me. Um, you know, they they don't make it easy and they can be a little, they can treat you in a very dismissive manner, but no, they mm. were not able to stop me from representing. And, and again, this is, for the federal government, it's a very different system than for the private sector and the civilian um, whistleblowers who who go to civilian courts. Um, I, I eventually, uh-huh. federal employees can, can kick out to federal and even to the Supreme Court. But for the most part, you know, it all starts with these internal systems um, specially designed okay. for government
1: employees. So, Jackie, so are you saying that in these courts dealing with whistleblowers, um, and I'm trying to understand this here, are things in, in different? these procedure different than it is in a regular court, a common court, or is it just the same?
0: Yeah, so uh, I mean, I would definitely say it's different. Um, so my so my complaint first went to the Office of Special Counsel. Um, and I did go to the office of the inspector general, who twice <laughs> told me to go elsewhere and never investigated my complaint, um, which was a mistake. I oh, should geez. have insisted that the OIG investigate the um, the. So what I initially had reported was a conflict of interest with suicide prevention funding. So instead of mm-hmm. in, instead of investigating that, they sent me to OSC for the retaliation. And by the time we got down the road with OSC, there was no investigation on what I had reported in the first place. Um, and, and as I mentioned, oh, wow. I the person who I had reported to had passed away. So that, mm-hmm. was not, that was one of my first mistakes early on, is I should have separated out my issues. I should have taken mm-hmm. the conflicts of, Interest with the suicide prevention funding contracts. I should have insisted that the OIG investigate that when I first reported it, and then made a separate complaint to the OSC about the retaliatory issues. I should have separated okay. those two things. And then OSC, you know, they investig- oh. Well, they investigate, Go ahead. and then either they. They can assist, or they send you over to the Merit System Protection Board. So, and that's where mm-hmm. I bounced back and forth between the agency, between Department of Defense, MSPB, then the Office of Personnel Management (OPM), and MSPB. So, it was a lot of going from here to here to here to here to, here to finally get a judge yeah. to hear my case. And those are administrative judges. Um, that are a little different than, you know, in a, in a court where the judges have been elected and, and their terms are a little different and there's, a, there's potentially okay. a jury. I mean, it really depends on the case. Okay. If it's a False Claims Act case or if it's a, an EEO type of case, it really kind of
1: depends where it goes and who has okay. the best jurisdiction. See, I don't understand why there's an office of inspector general, why there's an office of civil rights. If this is an indicator that something is wrong, um, this stuff just, you know, it's like if your house was on fire on one end, you wouldn't go down and start a fire on the other end. Uh, you'd call the fire department, and get that fire put out. But no, we don't do that. We have all this corruption and abuse and waste and fraud going on, and instead of correcting it, they erect these internal agencies who are going to deal with it. They're going to make sure you're treated right, only they never do anything like the Office of Inspector General. I have yet to figure out what these people are actually supposed to be doing. I've well, never been able to out.
0: They don't know either because yeah, we've had ahead. whistleblowers ah. who will go to the OIG. <laughs> And then the OIG, like in the VA, we've had somebody go to the OIG who sent them to OAWP who said, oh, no, we don't have jurisdiction in your case. You need to go to the OIG. And and they're like, wait, I started at the OIG. And now it's months and months yeah. later, and you're telling me the referral the OIG made was erroneous. And, and then there's, yeah. you know, if you're in, if, again, through the VA, the OAWP, which, That's been, you know, a mess we can talk about different. But what they do and what OSC does, so if the whistleblower goes to OSC and OAWP, OAWP should have the opportunity of resolving the matter in-house. But they don't. They say, Mm -hmm. oh, well, you filed with OSC, so we're not going to help you. We're going to wait for them when OAWP could resolve the issue. Imagine if we could resolve some of these issues at the lowest common denominator and yes. restore the whistleblower to their previous job, to their previous pay, I mean, whatever it is that they that they need um, restitution for, let's make that decision easy and early without all of these adjudications having to take place. I think that's what most
1: people want. Well, you know, you talk about restitution or maybe getting placed back in your in your job. Would you, after what you've been through, would you actually want to go back there in that situation and work? Because you're <laughs> going to be faced with a lot of the same people that tried to, you know, gang you. Um, would you want to do that? No. <laughs> I mean,
0: yeah. when I think about that, I, I mean, it's, 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 it's funny because... Um, you know, I've had people ask me, so would you go back to the government ever? And, uh, you know, there's a part of me that I'll, I'll see these issues, like I see the rising suicide numbers and, you know, the PTSD and the things, the issues yes. that I've cared about. There's a part of me that is, oh, my gosh, I, I want to do something about this. And if I was there, if only I could. And then I, and then yes. the rest of it comes flooding back like a nightmare. And, and I've literally yes. had nightmares about this stuff where you just wake up in a cold sweat and you think, oh, my gosh, yeah. I, I don't know that I could put myself through that again. I don't know that I could ever yeah. feel safe in that kind of environment. I don't know if I could really trust these coworkers, um, the stress, the anxiety, the depression, uh, the, the grief, yeah. the absolute grief that they cause me. Um, I don't know that that will ever go away. I mean, that is what PTSD is. I mean, that's why I so relate to some of these things that combat veterans talk about. Because you do feel like you've been embattled. You do feel like you've been dehumanized. Mm -hmm. You do feel victimized. They have tortured you psychologically. Um, They have traumatized you. And the wrongdoing, the perpetration that you were trying to stop and fix, I mean for me that continues every time I see the, the high suicide numbers among our men and women in uniform and our veterans it just destroys me it and it infuriates yeah. me that we were we were actually working on a plan that in 2014 was showing some validity I mean it was it was, a, it, was it was one one year of data but imagine if we could have replicated that data and when I think about the contracts that got canceled in 2015 and the, the work and the data collected and everything that we were doing, how it just got demolished. I, I think these, wow. that there, there couldn't possibly be a place for me in that world. Those people yeah. were horrible.
1: And what they did was horrible. Yeah, and, well, and that's the thing, too, people's willingness to go along with knowing that they are causing the harm, knowing that, you know, whether it's to someone close to them in the workplace or to the individuals who are supposed to be the recipients of services and to know that they're being denied. And especially in the case of the veterans, I have an issue. I truly do. Mm -hmm. Um, Just you don't send somebody into hell and then bring them back and say, well, too bad for you. And, uh, right. well, and this is what we do to them. We ignore them or we drug them or we do other things to them, but we don't take care of them, not to any degree. And the amount of money that the VA gets is absolutely staggering. Somebody's living good. Um, that's all I know. But the, go ahead. but
0: the real question is, what happens to that money? Like, where does it go? Yes. Like, the... Um, VA, a few years ago now, two, two years, two, three years ago now, put out the, the PREVENTS roadmap for suicide prevention. It's now gonna be this public health approach, which I understand and agree with That you, you need a public health approach. But we have an, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Administration, that is a public health agency, that should be leading that effort. Mm-hmm. But now we have the VA leading that effort. Okay, but my question is, how come in this prevents report, that's a, a roadmap for suicide prevention public health, there's not one mention of an inpatient bed? There's not one mention of increased staffing? And then these are the issues that other whistleblowers have brought up, right? Um, staffing at vet centers. Um, being required to see 30 to 33 patients a week instead of the recommended standard of 25, money that doesn't get spent the way it's supposed to get spent. Um, In in one of the DOD reports, you can actually see it from budget year to budget year where $20 million just disappears. What happened to $20 million? Mm -hmm. Congress in one year said this is for suicide prevention, but then it goes down by 20 million dollars in the following year. What happened between this year and this year to 20 million dollars? Where did it go? How come did Congress not fund it? Did it get? Did it not get spent in the year before? Contracts that got canceled. Why? What happened to the money that was there for those contracts? How come we didn't do it? We've had call centers where they are where they don't have enough money to have better equipment and be fully staffed. So they're dropping calls when veterans call in. We can't get bed days of care for veterans who do call the hotline, and they are listed as having severe suicidal ideation, but there's no available bed day of care. So where do they go for six, eight weeks while they're waiting for bed? We give them a prescription we send them home, and we tell them to hang on and hold on because we're going to get them into a bed and they're going to get this great care but now, they're, now they've been turned away at the emergency room and they're sent out into the parking lot, I've got police officers who are telling me we're supposed to be trained in stopping and asking people um, that we see in the parking lot that look upset. Well, that's a violation of your civil liberties. Police officers aren't supposed to stop you and interrogate you without probable cause. So now they're being asked to monitor people who might be suicidal in a parking lot. Why wasn't the mental health person able to do that? Why does the police officer have to do that in the parking lot? I mean, these are these miscarriages of care that are being allowed to be perpetrated because we shift money and focus away from the important things. But we can do these sexy social media campaigns. We can have posters and billboards and, and give out all kinds of tchotchkes with a 1-800 number for the call center, which is an important thing to do. But then you have to back it up with a standard of care. And when that's missing, and and whistleblowers call me and have told me, hey, we're told don't say that a patient is suicidal. Say that it's only moderate or that it's controlled or that there's no active plan when they know that this person is at greater risk. But because the medical center doesn't have the funding, or the staffing to provide that level of care, then the patient is listed in the in the record. It's a fraudulent record, so that the medical center doesn't get in trouble for that. I have another whistleblower who was on TV talking about not telling patients they had TBI diagnoses when they also had PTSD. So veterans, um, and I believe it was in Louisiana, they weren't being told that they had TBI. So they weren't getting treatment. They weren't getting meds. They weren't getting all the complex level of care that would it take to help somebody who has a cognitive impairment manage PTSD symptoms. And now, and now you've gotten me awesome off <laughs> uh, Well, I'm going to tell
1: you something about like you asked where off. the 20 million went. <laughs> That's all right. Hang on there. You asked where the 20 million went. Nobody knows where it went. Uh, One of the things I learned early on in in going after legislation and running it down is a bill passes, and from there, it's still not an automatic deal. Then it, you know, they have to include the cost and all of that stuff. Then it goes over to funding, okay? Mm -hmm. And so they decide in funding where the money is going to come from to pay for the cost of that bill. And if it's approved there Mm -hmm. and they designate, you know, it's going to come from this, that, or something else. Then it's sent over for authorization, and this is mm-hmm. where things stall sure. out. The authorization never comes, but Hold they up, will but still live. I'm talking list about
0: money that was their... authorized, I'm talking about money that was yeah. already in the line item in the budget, it was there, never got spent. Okay, so and then disappeared.
1: So, who's got a new house or a new car or a new what? That's what you need to look <laughs> for because. Uh, you know. Somebody got something. Uh, uh, you know, this happens all the time in these agencies. Uh, remember on 911, uh, well, two, mm-hmm. yes, two days before and travel: Yes. two days before 9 happened, the Pentagon was nailed for missing two trillion dollars that they just didn't mm-hmm. know what happened to it. 9 one mm-hmm. happened, that fell off the radar. Nobody ever looked at it again. But this happens mm-hmm. all the time, Jackie. This happens. Millions of dollars go missing, and it's like, "Oops, mm-hmm. hell!" I I freeze up if I'm a dollar short in my checking account. How do you? How do you? How do you get by? Twenty million being missing, or ten million,
0: you know, or even a hundred bucks.
1: What? Where is that money? Somebody knows where that money is. Somebody got the benefit of it, and it wasn't you. I wouldn't disagree.
0: No. No, I, I got pushed yeah. out of my job for making complaints about it yeah. all.
1: Yes, Jiminy Christmas. Mm-hmm. This is just disgusting. Um, has anybody else in in the area where you worked, has anybody else blown the whistle or faced any of this? Oh, yeah, like I
0: said, um, the, the two most common types of whistleblowers I have come from the Department of Veterans Affairs and Defense. And it was other yes. um, it was other DoD people who really and some VA people who inspired me to want to create whistleblowers of America because they felt like we needed each other. We may not always agree on yes. things. We may not always see eye to eye. Our cases all may be different and have nuances. But the fact that you know we need our own army. Listen, you, you know you said it. They come to court with five, ten people on their side and you know, an endless supply of cash. The best thing for whistleblowers Mm -hmm. is to have somebody that is like a friendly ear that they can talk to and problem solve, make decisions, be resilient. I mean, sometimes it's time to let the case go. And 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 it's Mm -hmm. okay to come to that decision. But it takes having that person who has walked where you've been and understands what that battle is like, who can say to you, you know what, it's okay. You know, it's it's time. Yeah. It's time to, it's time to, you know, integrate this into who you are. It's always going to be part of your life, but it's okay to want to go mm-hmm. and do other things. And because families have suffered, I think you mentioned earlier, people who have been divorced, yeah. homeless, suicidal. Uh, you know, this does take over your life. Trust me, my family has not yeah. always been happy with me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So, um I got another question here uh, from a listener, okay. and it said, if, Have any of the people that you previously worked with offered an apology for their behavior?
0: No, not a one. Jeez.
1: What a fine bunch of folks we are. Um, as a matter of fact, they've well,
0: two of them have continued to harass me, and they um the reporter who wrote the story about my MSPB win actually sent me Mm -hmm. an email. Now, she didn't interview me before she did that story. Um, I was as surprised as anybody when I saw that she had covered the fact that, uh, you know, that I had won my case at MSPB. Um, But then she, a few days later, she sent me an email, and then another day later she sent me another email that, two of the people that were involved in my case, two of the people whose nasty notes I had read to the judge, in fact, mm-hmm. two of them had asked her to retract her story. They wanted the editors really? to take it down.
1: Mm-hmm. Did they do that? No. Good.
0: No. Okay. No. Um, this was in the mili- military times. Um, covered it. And the uh, the reporter, and they, what, they, what one of them did was um, she convoluted a different case in with my case and was trying to say that she had been exonerated. But the case she had been exonerated about was a completely different complaint than mine. So it was, uh, I think the only thing she served to do was, was to show that she was under investigation more than once or under suspicion more than once. Because the OIG never yeah, even in my case. It,
1: yeah. Don't you find it amazing what people will put in writing if they think mm-hmm. you're never going to see it?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I mean, it's amazing I, the
1: you know, side that will come out.
0: Yeah, I'm guessing they never thought that the reporter would just follow their emails to me.
1: Holy cow!
0: But they and, and I said to her, "You should write the story." I mean, they outed themselves. I didn't give you their names. They outed themselves.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's just <laughs> I, I. don't know. I I don't even know what to to say anymore. Uh, I, I hear so much of this stuff, and it never gets better. These are horror stories. I, I mean, they truly are. For anyone to have to Um, to endure this. I had a young man on here a few years ago named Therese Simon and he's out of Louisiana and Mm -hmm. he had worked at the, I believe it was the Houston VA and he had identified um, contamination in the water in like even in the surgical bays for their ice machines and Mm -hmm. where it was making ice and everything. Yeah, and so he went and he rep- He went up the chain of command and reported it, and mm-hmm. they said, "Oh no, he was crazy." And this is what happened to him. They, the whole place turned on him and just drove this kid crazy. And then mm-hmm. it, it came out that there was a break in the water line where it came into the hospital, and it was contaminating mm-hmm. the water. But they relentlessly mm-hmm. pursued. It. He finally gave up and went home uh, to to New Orleans, I believe they went into his community and started casting doubt about his character. And he was this and he was that went to his mother and brother whom he was living with and even got to them and they were just merciless for him. And he had called me the one day so upset. And then he said, my mother wants to talk to you. And I thought, Oh, big mistake. And so anyway, she got on the phone, Jackie, and she said to me something. She, I love this religious junk. She said, "I pray the Lord every day for my son." To, and I said, "I hope you pray the Lord to have some compassion for your son." Mm-hmm. And she sat there and didn't say anything. But this kid has just been through hell. And they are relentless. They will not leave him alone, and this has been years now. But I hear this from, like, the women of forestry, people coming out of the USDA, the VA, whatever it is. They never stop coming. Um, No, and that's why we asked
0: earlier, would I go back to government? No, I don't know that I would feel safe to go back to government because I don't trust that that there aren't them and their cohorts out there lurking somewhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know and that it's I would like feel there's safe nothing to be around do. Yeah, there's nothing they yeah, won't do. Yeah,
0: it's insidious. Yeah. I mean,
1: here's this reporter who yeah. I
0: thought I was when I saw she wrote about my and because it is a rare event, for especially to be pro se and to win a settlement mm-hmm. um, at MSPB. The fact that you yeah. know, I th- I think it's like less than ten percent. It may even be less than seven percent of the people who go to MSPB uh-huh. win. So the fact that I won, yeah. and I won pro se, um, and that I won after making complaints about wrongdoing at the Pentagon, I think you said you have the article on mm-hmm. your website. Um, yes. That's the article. I mean, some so two people who saw that article saw themselves so and recognized their own guilt and culpability. Not I didn't do it, they did it.
1: Yeah, I don't know that I'd have the nerve to go up against the Pentagon. Yeah. Uh, a better woman than I am, Jackie. I just don't mm-hmm. know, first and again, if you make me mad, I'm willing li- liable to do anything. But uh, I, I just, I don't know. What do you see in the future for yourself? Well, so that's a great question. Um, I'm
0: very proud of where we are with the Subblowers of America. Um, We started a whistleblower protection advocate certification program because we do feel like there's a career pathway here. Yeah, we do feel like peer support, there's a career pathway to help people mentor through this process and and teach and train other people. Um, We're working on plans for what we want to call a workplace promise institute um, so that one of the things we require for the workplace for the whistleblower protection advocate certification is like 10 hours of training um, that is based Mm -hmm. on the um, evidence-based reciprocal peer support, understanding some of the whistleblower laws, understanding some of the tools. But we wanted to Mm -hmm. collimate in the idea that there needed to be this workplace promise that what we Mm -hmm. wanted employees to ultimately embrace was this idea of right-doing and organizational right-doing. And uh, the Mm -hmm. workplace promise was born out of actually work I had done previously with the World Health Organization on developing a suicide prevention imperative and then a toolkit. I actually got to go to Geneva Mm -hmm. and work with some folks in 2016 so that I put together these 11 tenants of a, of a workplace promise, and we're hoping to make that the basis of a whistleblower protection advocate conference mm-hmm. that for the, we want to um, launch this around Labor Day. So we're looking at, the I think it's the 9th and 10th of September to host our very first whistleblower protection advocate certification training under the umbrella of a Workplace Promise Institute. So Mm -hmm. stay tuned. Hopefully we'll be putting out more and more information about that. And then I mentioned that we're also Mm -hmm. working on the book. So I'm hoping the book will be wrapping up around the same time of the conference because I do think understanding the psychosocial impacts of retaliation is something that nobody else is really doing in the same way. There are a lot of lawyers and and legal, um, but understanding the psychological trauma of being a whistleblower is not something um, that's being done as broadly. And I think I mentioned, I'm connecting with whistleblowers in the UK, um, South Africa, uh, Canada, um, in Israel. I've had people, Australia, I've had people all over the globe see my articles, um, see things I've posted, um, see me present at on other venues, on the radio, and they've reached mm-hmm. out and they've invited me to be on their webinars and to do other presentations. Good. So doing things like this is really exciting for me. It's For me, it's my own personal healing to, to help and reach out. But, you know, I, I, I sit at... All, all hours and i read some of these things from other whistleblowers and it does it just breaks my heart to hear how alone and isolated and misunderstood they they feel yes. and frightened and lonely and and that there's that, that trauma that identity disruption is so pervasive in their lives and that there's so little help understanding this very little um, restitution that comes from these court cases. One attorney told me most whistleblowers, you know, for their emotional pain and suffering, you know, they're lucky when you get $25,000 um, instead yeah. of, you know, the thousands or millions that other um, yeah. uh, workers might get for their damages. So this
1: yeah. is,
0: this is a, a cause we're in an uphill battle on. So... That's kind of my hope for the future: is to is to fill that
1: void. Well, you know, I have noticed too. I, I primarily deal with these predatory guardianships of these attorneys and these professional mm-hmm. predators. And mm-hmm. over the last two years, people reaching out from other countries. We've had uh, I work closely now with people in Australia, um, mm-hmm. Spain, England, France, the UK, Canada. Uh, and what I'm finding and what I'm now hearing from you, all of these things, these issues that we're dealing with and we're fighting, they're taking place in other countries. It may be a different terminology mm-hmm. or a different name for the organization, okay. but it's the same yeah. thing. And well, there, with the Internet, we're able to reach mm-hmm. out to other people, and I think this is concerning to many people up top. And I fully anticipate... Yeah. And over the next couple of years we're going to be seriously curtailed in communicating with people outside the country. I truly do
0: well, I think the one thing though that I've learned about trauma is that it is it is universal, so whether you're talking about combat veterans um, who have who have fought in the russian army in have been in France, have been in Spain, have been in israel have been in the U.K., mm-hmm. combat trauma is combat trauma. And I'm seeing the same thing yes. with whistleblowers that most countries, um, you know, and I was just reviewing um, this week, I was reviewing the European Union um, report and the, um, there's a, an anti-corruption report out of Korea that both give recognition mm-hmm. to how dangerous whistleblowing is and that retaliation is harmful. We're, we're getting there. We're, we're making those inroads about, yeah. uh, and I call it taking a trauma-informed perspective into understanding the mm-hmm. retaliation, or all right, what I've called workplace traumatic stress, that we have to see these yeah. hostile environments as, as a um, serious injury, as a personal trauma, and that people have been harmed, they're suffering, they had gone to war. This is a war of a
1: different kind. Yes. Well, and you mentioned too about it being dangerous. I think that is probably the most appropriate word to apply to whistleblowing, is it's dangerous. Yes. It's dangerous. Yes. Personally, it's dangerous in your everyday life, in your relationships, in, in everything to do with you. It's it encompasses everything, and it is dangerous to do this. Yes. So yes. I always it's admire part- people that had the backbone to stand up and say "Hey, wait a minute this is wrong you're not supposed to be doing this but what happens to people Jackie they get into these agencies and and, you know the supervisors managers or whatever they call them and it's like they go nuts and they suddenly think they can do whatever they want to do and you can't do anything about it which in most cases you can't but um, what, what happens in people's minds that allows uh, them. You know,
0: so I think that's a you know that's a fascinating question and, and probably could be a long dissertation in of itself. But the the idea that power corrupts, that money corrupts, yes. that when there's personal gain at stake, uh, it's very hard for people to to not choose their own self interest over the greater good, and. I got that you know you're in a very you're in these very competitive environments. Um, you're trying to make a living to support your family, and and people can easily I think get lost or seduced by the power. And and there there look there are some truly evil people in this world. There's that has you know I used to think everything was about your nurture and your environment, but I've come to learn that there's evil walks among us um, and it and it's, could be dressed in cute little outfits and high heels, but the, um, the fact that it is there cannot be overlooked and that the, the influence it has permeates an organization I and mean, dangerousness comes from an organizational culture that allows dangerousness corruption to bleed, and when we don't address it, when we don't have good anti-fraud detection, when we don't have certified fraud examiners, when we don't have properly trained investigators, when we don't have impartiality and independence in our judicial systems, all of those things lead to this very toxic command climate and culture that allows for corruption to take place. And and it may start small. It may not be the the biggest glass scheme ever. I mean I've talked to people who, you know, it's been time card fraud and then it's been millions of dollars on contracts and it's been everything in between. So it takes all it takes all forms. And you know, people that want to avoid being responsible, they don't want to be guilty, even if they've made the mistake. I mean, one of the things I've read about medical errors is, is Docs don't like to, make, to admit to medical errors for fear of being sued or um, held accountable. Attorneys don't want to be disbarred. People don't want to admit to their mistakes because they don't want to lose an even greater um, career, a financial incentive, their family stability and security. And some whistleblowers are even hesitant because of that, because they know that other people might be impacted by this. You know, i talked to a, a group of whistleblowers who um, saw fraud by upbilling the government, which meant there were too many people on site. Well, if you, get, if you remove the too many people from being on site, then your friends have just lost their jobs. But it's not safe to have too many people. There could be a, a major accident in, in a chemical plant, let's say, and you don't want to, you don't want to see that risk. So what do you do? Do you blow the whistle and have people lose their jobs, or you, or do you do, do do you go along with it and you allow the fraud to perpetrate because you think, well, who are they really hurting? These are, you know, if if this fraud gets reported, then you know these twenty people are going to lose their jobs. What, what do you do? And and I guess that these become really tough ethical decisions for some people.
1: I don't know that this can ever be corrected. And I think as long as federal agencies are basically allowed this wide latitude, and, well, yeah, you did this and you did that, but, you know, we're going to look bad if this gets out, so here's what you do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But nobody's accountable. It's like we talked about we're paying for everything. We're paying for the abuse, the fraud, the waste. We're paying for Mm -hmm. the retaliation. And we're paying their attorney fees if they have to go to court, and we're paying any fines or restitution they have to pay. And they walk away free. And many of them have um, federal benefits built up. If they get fired for this. Yeah, if they get get fired, they lose those benefits. Mm -hmm. But so they allow them, Mm -hmm. like Tony from Forestry, to step down and resign. That way Mm -hmm. he keeps all his benefits. He paid all of his attorney fees, you know, his whole defense mm-hmm. and everything. Why did we have to pay for that? Because the women that came against him all had to put their own attorney bills. That's not right.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, that's where the injustice exists. It's where you can't, you can't hope to win these cases until there is more balance in, in some of these scales. And that's why, as, as Whistleblowers of America, we have said that there should be fines and funds and grants available that agencies have to pay for outside representation and support. Um, you know, we started this Whistleblower Protection Advocate Certification Program because we would like to see a, a career trajectory for people who have been whistleblowers to then be able to help and support other people. But getting that culture change, you know, I remember years ago when um, the government established the Office of Victims of Crime and there was um, the National Organization of Victim Assistance. They help crime victims, people who have been sexually assaulted, domestic violence cases, um, but they don't do workplace cases like with like retaliation. They don't look at other forms of harassment and assault. It's it's all related right. to the physical violence. So we don't have an office like OBC for whistleblowers. There is no place for them to go to get assistance for people to get training and, and for them to be a, a grant making program that and and you're right, the government spends millions and millions and can't even account for half of it. But yet to help people find justice, and not just justice for themselves, but justice for their institutions, for that to happen, it's up to the whistleblower, the the citizen, to pay for the case, which you're right. It it should be outrageous to everybody listening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All of this just, you know, since I was first exposed to it, Jackie, has just boggled my mind. How could this be happening in the federal government? Mm-hmm. And then I always wonder, too, what money could we save annually if they just clean things up? And yes. I think the government oh, has absolutely. gotten so monstrously large. It's gotten so large that it's untenable. It's unmanageable. And so we have these offices of go away and don't bother me, like civil rights and the office of inspector general. And... Which costs us more money to do nothing. And the problem never gets fixed. And um, so I don't, I just see it as an untenable situation. How much longer it can go on, I don't know.
0: No, I am with
1: you. Yeah. Okay, Jackie, tell us a little more about your book again, and tell us about the Whistleblowers of America website, how we can reach you. I've got a direct link to it. In both the radio show uh, promo and the one on PPJ, and uh, you can click and go right to Whistleblowers of America. But give a give a little background again on your book and your website. Sure.
0: Well, hopefully the book will come out um, at the end of this year. It is um, by Springer Publishing Company, and it will be titled "Psychosocial Impacts of Whistleblower Retaliation." Shattering Employer Resilience in the Workplace Promise. Uh, An article we did was published in Crisis, Stress, and Human Resilience, Volume 2, Number 2, September 2020, on a Whistleblower Retaliation Checklist. Um, So those are two sources. I think you put those on your website, or the book will be out. I don't know if Springer has announced anything about it yet. And then our um, Whistleblower Protection Advocate, workplace promise institute should take place september 9th and 10th of this year and we'll have more information about that on our website which is www.whistleblowersofamerica.org and we also have um, pages on linkedin facebook and twitter we're at whistle p2p so that's us and all our social media
1: okay all right well, I want to thank you for coming on tonight and uh, for talking about this because, you know, we hear more about it all the time. Most people don't survive it. Uh, I'm glad that you did. <laughs> and uh, well, but, thank you. And that you prevailed, you know, and that you prevailed. I, I just can't imagine. But sometimes, you know, the good guys do win. And, uh, and especially well, being up against it. A court, you know what I'm saying because one of the another issue that we deal with constantly is the corruption of the judiciary uh people are so distraught and angry over the condition of our judiciary right up to and including the Supreme Court. most people think the Supreme Court needs to be done away with. I personally agree with that it no longer serves the purpose it was intended to and um but so, to hear that a judge actually helped you and listened and kind of coached mm-hmm. you, That it, it gives me a little bit of hope. There's some good ones out there. And um, Yeah. But I, I do. I want to thank you for coming on. And and uh, keep us informed of what's going on. And if you need more airtime, something comes up, let me know. We'll get you back on. I will definitely let
0: you know when we get close to having our conference and when the book is about to be published. Okay.
1: okay. Sounds good. All right. To everybody out there, thank, thank you. you for tuning in. Thank you. Uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, this has been a good show, and I hope you've gotten some idea of what whistleblowers endure. Um, I know they're maligned in the media, uh, actually ostracized and many times made fun of or poo-pooed. Oh, listen to they just after money. The majority of these people never see a dime. They are ruined financially. Their careers are ruined. Their family life is ruined. The retaliation never ends. And we, the public, are paying for every bit of this. We are paying for it from start to finish. Not to mention whatever fraud, waste, and abuse is going on in that agency, we're paying for all that, too. So think about that the next time you want to thumb your nose at whistleblowers. We need these people, and we need to support them. And if you can't support them, shut up. That's all I have to say. Anyway, we'll be back tomorrow night within the mix. Mm-hmm. Me and Kaz, we're going to have Terry LaPointe on, and she's going to be talking about the Golden Flake era, heiress who got guardianized by, by some employees that she fired the same day. And the battle this woman has fought to try and survive Uh, Of course, being an extraordinarily wealthy woman, they're taking her to the cleaners. You know they are. Anyway, Terry LaPointe will be with us reporting on that. So I'm looking forward to that. Back on Sunday night with Tanya Talks, and we'll be talking about the prisons in Oklahoma primarily, but basically the state of the prisons across the United States, the number of people who are incarcerated on fabricated evidence, prosecutorial discretion, the withholding of exculpatory evidence and to be found later to be totally innocent. Anyway, here's a lot to look forward to. And for everybody that tuned in, thank you so much. We appreciate your attention. And we will talk to you all Sunday night. Tomorrow night, too. <laughs> I forgot what day it was. Anyway, talk to you all later. Good night, everyone.